0: question for you. Um, And I want you to raise your hand. This is a participation question for you. Um, How many of you think that it is important to eat healthy? Can you raise your hand? How many of you think it's important? Okay. So that's like, okay. 75% of you. Okay. How many of you think that you eat pretty healthy? How many of you think you actually, you actually, okay. Pretty, okay. Pretty much the same. Okay. I read something this week that was crazy. Here's what it said. It said 75% of people in America think that they eat healthy, okay? Which is basically, I mean, that's basically what you guys, 75% of you were like, I kind of eat healthy. Well, here's the thing that this study showed. Guess what percentage of people really eat healthy? You think 75% of people actually eat healthy? Less than 20% of people actually eat healthy according to like the people who study the diet. So we're talking like basically it's just Rachel and Susan and Darcy like that's all that and Laurie sometimes she's kind of healthy. She eats the healthy stuff sometimes right. So Tammy brings her own food. She's too good for a flame broiler. I don't where is Tammy? She, I it she ate it tonight. <laughs> she said she's like ah, I don't know. So in a room this size, the reality is, I guess, only like 19, 20 people actually eat healthy. That blows my mind. For how many of you think that you eat healthy, it's crazy that only some of you eat healthy. And here's the thing. I will just admit to you, point blank right now, um, I don't eat very healthy. And um, Lewis says yes. Do you, Lewis thinks he eats healthy. He works at Chick-fil-A. He can't even say thank you. He has to say my pleasure. But here's the reality. I, look. I know, I know personally that it's important to eat healthy. Like it is important, but here's the thing. Like I don't like really, it doesn't really matter to me, just to be honest, right? Some of you are really into healthy food. A lot of your parents are. A lot of our leaders are really into the healthy food, Um, but I don't eat that healthy. I know it's important, but I don't really act like it's that important. And you know, eating healthy, it's a big deal, but there are some things that are bigger deals than eating healthy because there are some things that, We all kind of like agree to and say, yeah, I I think that's true. Just kind of like all you basically said, I think it's important to eat healthy, but very few people actually do. There's a lot of things like that that we get in scripture that are very similar to that. That some people, actually most people agree and think it is good to do, but very few people do it. There's a lot of things like that. And one of them is something we're going to read about today in the Gospel of John. We see that there are a ton of people who want some association with Jesus. And we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of John. But there are some people and very few people that actually trust Jesus like they should. And what we're going to see is actually, in particular, one disciple who did not trust Jesus until he physically saw him. It's the the disciple, the apostle we know as Thomas. And what we're going to see today is that he needed to see Jesus to believe Jesus. But the problem is, for all the rest of us, we don't get that luxury. And a lot of people say they believe in Jesus, but there's not that many people that actually truly believe in him so much that it changes their life. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. So grab your Bibles. Let's look at this apostle named Thomas. Let's look at John chapter 20, verse 19. That's where we're going to start. John 20, 19. This is, remember, after Jesus already appeared to Mary Magdalene. If you remember last week, he showed up to Mary. Mary was scared at first, didn't know who it was. She thought it was a gardener. She didn't even know it was Jesus. And then when Jesus said her name, then she knew immediately, that's Jesus. And she calls Jesus rabbi. That's my, that's my guy, that's my teacher. I know who you are now. Now, as you said my name, I'm gonna say your name back. That's what we see last time. And it says on that very evening. So verse 19, this is just later that afternoon. So it's been a week for us since we last talked about this, but it's only been a couple hours in the, in the narrative. So let's check it out. Verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, which is interesting. So it says that earlier that day, who saw the empty tomb? Well, Peter saw the empty tomb and John saw the empty tomb, but where are the disciples now? They are in a locked room, they're afraid. They've gone into some inner room. We don't know where it is, probably in the city of Jerusalem. And they've locked the doors. And John says why? Because John was there. He remembers. It was because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of those Jewish leaders who might go pursue them because the story has been spreading that the tomb is empty. And they're scared that they might be the next targets for these Jews who might want to come and kill them. Look what it says next. It says, as they were there in this locked room, Jesus came and stood among them. Okay. Think that through for for two seconds. The doors are locked. It's imagine, imagine we put you in one of these small group rooms. Okay? That one right there. There's no windows to that one. It's the only weird small group room in that one, I guess. That does, oh, no, that one has a window. It's the only one that doesn't have windows right there. Okay? Imagine you get 12 or so people there, maybe more than 12. They're in there, and the doors are locked, and they're scared, and they don't want anyone to come in. And as they're maybe sitting in a circle talking, Jesus shows up over their shoulder. <laughs> weird. That's really weird. So how does he do that? I don't think he just walks in all normal. I don't think he just goes through the door and walks in and shows up and is randomly there. I think he shows up miraculously somehow. Jesus comes in with the doors locked. Doesn't say how. Maybe he teleported, right? We don't really know. But seriously, like we don't know how he got there, but it seems like he did not come in a normal way. It says he came and stood among them. And look what he says to them. Peace be with you, which is a good thing to say. Because if you're sitting in a locked room, afraid that someone might break in, and you look over the shoulder, and there's someone standing behind you, how are you feeling at that point in time? How would you feel? You're in there with your best friends, and you're scared out of your mind, and you don't want anyone to come in, and you turn over your shoulder, and there's someone standing in the corner of the room. How do you feel? Probably not much peace, right? You're probably freaking out. You're like, whoa, who who are you? And they have that same kind of push and pull that, that, that Mary had. Who are you? And Jesus says, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And if we remember what we studied in John 19, what's significant about his hand and his side? His hands on the cross were pierced, okay? And his side in particular was pierced. So in Jesus' resurrection body, which seems to be unique to Jesus, we get his hands and his side with scars in them. So he shows them his hands, shows them his scars here. To show, I'm the same person, I, not not different person here. Showed him his hand and his sides, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Look at that. They see his wounds, and something interesting happens. When they see his wounds, they're glad, because they know it's Jesus. It's not a faker. It's not some weird identical twin they didn't know about. Like, this is really Jesus, the one who died for me. I think this, this is actually a fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 16, 20 to 22. It's that section where he said, I'm going to go away and you're going to weep and you're going to be sad, but you're going to see me again. And when you see me again, you're going to rejoice. And I think what John's doing here as he writes this gospel, he's reminding us, the reader, remember when Jesus said he was going to go away, they were going to be sad and he was going to come again and they'd they'd rejoice. I think John's kind of bringing that full circle here in the gospel in that verse. Then in verse 21, Jesus said again to them, peace be with you, which is interesting. That's what he just said. But at the first time, it was kind of like he said it to calm their nerves, right? Like, don't freak out. It's me. Peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side, and they're glad and they're rejoicing. And then what does he say again? He says, peace be with you. I think he's not just giving this as a greeting. I think he's making a statement here. The last statement that we see that Jesus made before the resurrection was that last word that he said on the cross, which was to tell us it is finished. Now we see a really important other saying of Jesus here, which says, peace be with you. If you think about it, that's what Jesus came to do. I know that's kind of a a big statement, but that's what Jesus came to do was to bring peace to God's people. So he says it twice here, peace be with you, peace be with you. What is he going to say next? He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Which if you remember in this gospel, he said this before. He said this multiple times. I've sent by the Father and I'm going to send you. But it's interesting, he connects peace with their sending and then look at the next thing he says in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, which is an interesting statement in the original. It doesn't say on them. It just says he breathed, he exhaled, he breathed out, does not say on them. That's added to give some clarity. This and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Which is odd, right? Most people don't remember this story, right? Most people think that all that the giving of the Holy Spirit was, was in Acts chapter two. I think John includes it here because he's connecting it back to the mission that they're about to go on. He said, as the father sent me, I'm going to send you. And he says, he exhales, he breathes. And the word breathe, right? If you know um, your theology, you know, these Greek words, you might know this, that the word spirit is the same word that means breath. So all throughout the Bible, when it says that God gives his spirit, sometimes the way it's described is it's like God breathes, okay? John is saying Jesus is like that too. And when Jesus breathes, what happens? Well, these people get the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's not like he's forcing it down their throats. There's, a, there's an acceptance to this. Jesus gives it to them, but they also receive it. It's not like they're, you know, I don't know, being demon-possessed or something. They're not like that. It's like receive the Holy Spirit and they receive the Holy Spirit. It says for the first time they have this vital relationship with the Holy Spirit that they've that's unique to them. Verse 23 says, another interesting statement that a lot of people get confused about. It says, if this is Jesus talking to the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, these two verses are, in my opinion, as we've gone through this gospel. Two of the most confusing verses. First of all, what's with Jesus breathing and then getting the Holy Spirit? That's weird. And also, is Jesus saying that like, now they have the power to forgive people's sins? They have the power to tell people, you can't become a Christian, okay? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying fits everything that Jesus did, the mission that Jesus was on. First of all, it says, peace be with you, which is the mission. Then it says that he was sent by the Father and sending them. And then when They go, they have to have the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus promised in John 14, 16. He says, I'm gonna send a helper to be with you when I leave. So now these people, think this through. Now these people, these disciples, have God's spirit in them. They're sent out by Jesus and they're sent out to reach people with the message of forgiveness of sins. Does that sound like anything else you know in the Bible? That sounds like what happens in Acts chapter one and in Acts chapter two and in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go and make disciples that's what's happening right here. He's telling them to go and make disciples and now they can do it because they have God's spirit in them and God is gonna work through them. It's an encouraging statement, not a a weird statement about um, you can keep people from becoming Christians. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So it seemed like there might have been some disciples that weren't there. Most of the disciples probably were, but Thomas wasn't. And even in Luke chapter 24, we see it wasn't just 10 men it was also other disciples that are mentioned in Luke 24 that other scene that we just saw other disciples were mentioned so there's more than 10 people there but now you have Thomas who wasn't there verse 25 says so the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord and at that point what is the right response for Thomas to make think it through if all the disciples said we saw Jesus and Thomas probably heard from Mary and from Martha and these other people who saw Jesus. They say, we saw Jesus. What's the right response for Thomas? What should he do? What's the godly, perfect response to this? It's yes, I believe. Even though I haven't seen him yet, I believe. I trust Because he said that in his lifetime. He said that he would rise again. That's the right response. Thomas doesn't quite make the right response here. Look what he says. He says, but he said to them, unless I see his hands, and in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side where he was pierced, unless I do that and physically touch his hands and touch his sides. If I don't do that, I will never believe. The you where it says, I will never believe? That's the strongest way of saying no. In the original language, if you say no twice, basically, it's a double negative. It's an absolute not. I will never believe unless I do that. Now think about that. If you came to Jesus or, or, or came to Christianity in any way and had that same demand, would you ever believe? Not until it was too late. Okay. So Thomas is placing conditions on his trust in Jesus. Okay. This is not a good thing that Thomas does it's understandable because a lot of us might feel the same way, but it doesn't mean it was the right thing. I think this was the wrong thing. It says eight days later, which some people debate how long eight days is. Um, How many days was Jesus in the tomb? Think about it. He rose how many days later? Three days later, okay? He died on a Friday. He was risen on a Sunday. How many hours is that? That's not three full days, okay? That's a day and a half, but it was on three different days. So I think what they're saying is it's the next Sunday. Eight days later probably means the next Sunday. So it's been a week. It was Sunday, Easter Sunday. Now this is the Sunday after. It's eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, which is interesting, which still says that they're afraid. Do you see that? The disciples are still afraid of these Jewish leaders. They shouldn't be, but they are. Thomas is disbelieving, more than just doubting. He's disbelieving. He's saying, I will never believe unless I get my conditions met. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, what do you think Jesus said? For the third time, peace be with you. Peace. The whole mission that he came to bring. Peace. Verse 27. And he said to Thomas, which is interesting, put your finger here. And you can imagine Jesus coming up with his hand and says, hey, hey, Thomas, come here. Give me your hand. Put put your finger here. Right? Feel, Feel that. That, that place where the nail was, feel it. Hey, also, hey, Thomas, here. You touch my side right here. Put your hand right there. I'll show it to you. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Right. The problem with Thomas was more than just he didn't believe. He disbelieved. It's not that he had a lack of belief. It's that he said, I'm not going to believe. Do you see where it says up there in verse um? 20, uh, 25, I will never believe, okay? Jesus is just saying what Thomas already said. I won't believe. It's not that I can't believe or that I, I, I don't believe yet, but I really want to. It's I don't want to believe unless I see it. And Jesus comes and has to rebuke him and say, don't disbelieve because right now you're disbelieving, but you need to believe. Trust me. Trust that I'm risen from the dead. And Thomas, for all the hard time we've just given Thomas, what he does is the exact thing that every single person in this room should do when you're convinced of the truthfulness of who Jesus is and who he said he was and what he did. What Thomas says right here is what you need to say. What Thomas does right here in his heart and the change that happens in his heart is what needs to happen in your heart. It says right here, Thomas turned around and answered him, my Lord and my God. He looks at Jesus the man who was crucified, the man who was risen again, man who just is in a bodily form where he feels his side in his hands. He says to him, you are my God. Could you imagine that happening? Like that's weird to even think about any person saying that to any person. And in any other situation, this would have been wrong. But you see how Jesus, instead of saying, whoa, 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 don't call me God. No, he says, yes, that's exactly right. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? He says, it's not a bad thing, but blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Think about that. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, it's good. You have a blessing, Thomas, because you're blessed in the fact that you got to see me, and that's that's good, because most people throughout all of history who believe in Jesus don't see Jesus before they believe. We'll see Jesus after we believe, but not before. Thomas is one of those few people in history that got to see him before, so he's blessed, but what Jesus says there's even a greater blessing for people like you and people like me who believe in Jesus before we ever see him. And that's what he's getting at. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have yet believed. John goes on verse 30. This is not Jesus talking anymore. This is John the apostle. He's kind of summing up his whole book right here. And even when we started this book a long time ago, you might not even remember this. We looked at this passage Because this is the whole purpose of John writing this gospel. Look what he says. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. Remember what the signs were? The miracles, the water to wine stuff, the raising of Lazarus, all those things. Those were the signs. And John says, Jesus did many other signs. And the rest of the gospels include a lot of those. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's tons of miracles, tons of amazing things Jesus did and said that are not written in this book. I just included some of them, verse 31. But these are written so that you, not Thomas, not the disciples, not the apostles, not Mary Magdalene, but who? You, whoever picks up this book and whoever reads it. John says, I wrote this so that you may believe. The reason that he includes these things, even about Thomas, is He uses this as an example for you. As you listen to sermons and you pick up this book, he says, I want you to believe in Jesus because of what I wrote. He's talking about you. It's very rare that the scriptures turn around and start to address the reader individually, but this is one of them. John says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, first of all, that promised person from the Old Testament and the son of God, the son of God. Think about that. My Lord and my God, it's exactly what Thomas just said. He says, I want you to believe that too. It took Thomas seeing Jesus face to face, but Jesus said there's a special blessing for you if you believe that before you see Jesus. It was true 100 years ago. It was true 1,000 years ago. It's true today. That if you trust in Jesus before you see him, Jesus says about you, you're a blessed person. There are things in store for you that are amazing because you trust me without even seeing me. So I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and another thing, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this gospel. That's why we studied it this year. So that you would, first of all, believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And second of all, that you would have life in his name. That you would have eternal life. And the reality is, there have been a lot of sermons that we've heard about this. Maybe a lot that you've sat in. Maybe some notes that you've taken. Maybe some small groups you've sat in. But but here's the question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Thomas did not believe at the beginning. The disciples even took some convincing. Maybe you have taken some convincing, but the end result of all of it needs to be for you that you trust in Jesus. And if it's not that, then then all of this was really for nothing. If you don't trust in Jesus, that's John's point. That's my point too. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God because of everything you've learned about him. It's interesting that right after the disciples believe Jesus says, you have a mission to do. You're going to be sent out into this world. You're going to be empowered by my spirit. And you know what your mission is? Getting other people to believe. Think about that. I mean, if you think about, you know, what what you have learned about Jesus, you know how you know that? Because someone taught someone who taught you. And someone taught someone who taught them. And we have, obviously, the scriptures that have been teaching the church ever since the beginning, ever since John wrote this, this gospel, this Truth has been teaching people. And this multiplication of people being sent out in preaching, sent out in believing, that's been going on all the way until today. And that's why you sit here today. Because people before us and people before me have been faithful to preach what's in this book. And people have been getting saved and people have been forgiven of their sin. And the question is, have you believed? And then if you have believed, is this mission that Jesus sends these disciples on, is that your mission too? Is that what you're gonna be all about? Or are you gonna be all about whatever you wanna be about? Because if you wanna be about the most important thing, you need to join this mission as well. That's point number one. I really want you to write that down. Point number one, make God's mission your mission. And, and, And that's what Jesus says here. He says that the Father's mission for me was that I would be sent so that you would believe. And then guess what? Now that's your mission. I think that's so cool. We have the Father, the son and the spirit all in this passage and the combined mission of everyone and us, by the way, which is cool. We get to be included in what God is doing. The father had a mission for the son. What was it right? to come, to live, to bring peace to people by sacrificing himself, by laying down his life, by taking on our sin for himself, by dying on the cross for us, by rising again, to give us new life, to give us peace. That was the father's mission for the son. Now the son turns around to you and says, you're going to be a part of this too. Are you going to die on the cross for somebody? No, that's not your role. Your role is now you're going to spread this message. Now you're going to spread this good news. You're going to try to convince other people. You're going to try to get them to believe. But how do I do that? That seems impossible. How can I get someone to believe in Jesus? I can't. If you really think about it, how can you get someone in your life to believe in Jesus? How can you? You can share the truth with them. That doesn't make them believe. What's the the special ingredient? What's the secret sauce, right? It's what happens right here. It's that Jesus gives the disciples God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's why, so far, it's the Father's mission for the Son to complete. The Son sends us to do it, but who does the Son send to help us? God's spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, all in this passage. And that's the mission. That's why I want your mission to be about all that God's mission. Because that mission is going to go on in this world. There are going to be people, even in this room, who believe in Jesus, who are joining the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's work on this earth. And there are people who won't join that mission. I want you to be a person that joins that mission. I want you to make your life about that. It's interesting, this whole talk about forgiveness and, and setting people free and, and then some people not being set free. It's interesting because if you think about it, um, how can a person like you set someone free? How can you forgive the sins that they have, right? Well, you can't do that, but what you can do is you can present them with the gospel message that can do that. That's amazing that you have the power if you believe the gospel and know the gospel. Now you can share it with somebody and they can be forgiven of their sins before God. Do you know how powerful that is? Think about that. You have that power if you believe in Christ. And then you might say, well, I've done that before, but like, I can't convince anybody. Yeah, but guess what? The Spirit He's the one really that has the power to do it. You're sharing the message, but without the Spirit, the disciples would not have gotten anywhere. The Spirit is the one who's working in people's hearts. It's interesting, the whole forgiveness. In John 8, 34, Jesus said about himself that that he's the only one that can set people free. Before that, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the sun sets you free from that slavery to sin, you will be free indeed. Now, how can you join in Jesus's mission? Well, if you're someone who's sharing the truth, they can be forgiven of their sins. Now you get to be a part of his mission. Think about that. Imagine if you got a special task from like, like the FBI or something, I don't know, um, I don't know if you don't want a task from the FBI, but imagine you got some special task from some, from some super important thing. Maybe you got a special task from the NBA to be a, a scout or something, or you got a task from the FBI that you're gonna like spy on some you know, bad guy in your school. Like you got some, yeah, okay, there we go. Dylan likes that. He's got some like 13 year old, like I don't know, like terrorist at your school or whatever. And the FBI's like, I need you to like come like root it out, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where I'm going with this, um, The idea is like, if you had someone really important say, I want you to be a part of our mission. You know what you do? You'd be like, dude, I'm all about that. Absolutely. I'll do anything to be a part of that mission because that's awesome. That's really cool because that gets me excited. I want you to feel that same thing about this huge mission that God is willing to include you into. That people can be set free from their sins. We only really appreciate that if we know what that's like for ourselves though. That's why this doesn't work if we're not Christians. That's why it doesn't work if we're not forgiven ourselves. Jesus sent us like he was sent. Earlier in the gospel, he said something similar. John 17, 18, he's talking to the father. Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, these disciples. They're gonna be sent out. And when they do that, they're gonna proclaim that forgiveness of sins. Being on a mission changes your attitude. It changes your actions. It changes your behavior. It changes your thoughts. It changes what you do. It changes what you prioritize if you're really a man on a mission. Have you ever seen anyone who's like a man on a mission, who's like walking somewhere? Like your crush walks in the door and you walk the other way? You're like a man on a mission. You're like getting out of here. Uh, I was on a mission today. Have you ever told you that I like Arnold Palmer's? Arnold Palmer's? You know what Arnold Palmer's? Yeah, yeah. Lemonade, nice tea. So an unnamed employee who's sitting right there has been a part of the ordering process. She's been ordering Arnold Palmer's. And I'm like, this is awesome. I was like, this is amazing. Arnold Palmer's at work. I, I'm going I'm to pull a Pastor Doug and a Pastor Lucas and just grab a bunch for myself and put it in my office. But here's the problem. For the last five days, I've been looking for these Arnold Palmer's. I can't find them. I've been asking people, like, do you know, do you know where they went? I'm like, ooh, the teas? Like, I don't like them. I'm like, no, I don't care what you like. Where are the Arnold Palmer's? Where are they? I'm like, I, I, I saw some downstairs. You saw them? I checked everywhere. Like I was, I was talking to someone today who will be unnamed. And I'm like, did you see the Arnold Palmers? And they're like, yeah, I saw them downstairs. I'm like, no, you didn't. I was there yesterday. I turned the place upside down. Where, where, where are the turtles, right? Where are the Arnold Palmers, right? I don't know where they are, right? Where are they, okay? And then she's like, just go, go check it out. It's by the cold brew machine. So I left a meeting today went downstairs, filled my arms with seven Arnold Palmers and walked upstairs because I was like, and I felt good about it. I was like, yeah, I'm a man on a mission. Like I accomplished my mission. I left the meeting. Like I probably shouldn't have done that. Like, but I was a man on a mission. I didn't care. Like I was just going to do it. Right. You've done stuff like that too. Maybe not left a meeting for it, but you've been a man on a mission too. You've seen people who are just excited. That's a dumb thing to get excited about really, it's dumb. Like I could just buy some myself or say, hey, Sabrina, can you buy me some Arnold Palmers? But I just like didn't want to do that because I really wanted to find the Arnold Palmers. Okay. If you're in a man on a mission, you kind of block other things out. You kind of, this is like number one priority. I don't care if I'm in the middle of something else. If my mission here on this earth is to share the truth with people, it doesn't matter that I'm at school. It doesn't matter that maybe um, it's not a convenient time. It doesn't matter if maybe I might lose a relationship. Like I, I didn't hopefully didn't lose any relationships with people at work today because I left meetings. But like, even if I lost a relationship, my mission on this planet is to share the truth. Like, and if you're really a man on a mission, if you're really a woman on a mission, you are going to be all about that. And what we need to do is get that excitement in us. Jesus said also in the book of Acts when he was about to leave the earth, when he was about to ascend back to the Father. Acts one eight talks about how these disciples, they're gonna receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the cool thing is you get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of that mission, but you need to make that mission your mission. It's interesting, there's a connection in the scriptures between the spirit and the mission of God, the saving work of God. And here's what I mean by that. When Jesus started his official ministry, there was something that happened, okay? It's when Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was baptized. All four gospels talk about it. And what happens in a very unique way at every single account of his baptism, what's like the most important thing that happens at his baptism? He's baptized, and who shows up, right? God speaks, the spirit descends. And it's a visual representation for everyone to see. This man is now empowered by the Spirit. And the whole point of the Gospel of Luke is cool. Isaiah 61 is a passage. Isaiah 61 too. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news. And that's Jesus' mission. Okay, now you have that same pattern of thing that happens here for the disciples. Just as when Jesus started his mission, the Spirit was visibly and right there a part of what Jesus was doing. And now it was authenticated by the Spirit. Now, the mission for the disciples is also authenticated by the Spirit. It's also interesting, um, this word to breathe out okay, and to breathe the Spirit, right? And we said there's some wordplay there because the word breathe is the word Spirit, is the word breath. It's the same word. It's a play on words. But in the Old Testament Bible that these Jews had at the time that was in Greek, that word shows up in two important passages. One of them is in Genesis chapter 2, 7. And it's the passage, you might even already know that if you're thinking about it. Genesis 2, what happens in Genesis 2? Adam comes from the dirt. What does God do? He breathes the spirit. And what happens? Boom, creation. Now he has life. Now he's made in the image of God. When God breathes the spirit, now they have the spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of, of a man. Also, another passage that talks about God breathing on people, Ezekiel 37. You might know that passage as the dry bones, right? You ever heard that song, dry bones, dry bones, right? You know what I'm talking about? No, whatever. Um, Totally. Yeah, thank you. You do. Um, It's that passage where Ezekiel is surrounded by all these dry bones, and it's from all the hosts of Israel, the armies of Israel. And he says, it's a bunch of dry bones, and God says, breathe on them. They're going to have breath, and God breathes on them. What happens? Boom, creation new creation. Genesis 2 creation, Ezekiel 37, new creation. It's the same idea here. They're like new creations now, empowered by God's spirit to be a part of this mission. God is working his mission through you, if you believe and if you witness. I want you to be a part of that. These disciples are a part of that, but what about Thomas? Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed the party. That's a good party to be at, right? God empowering these people with the spirit. It's a bummer Thomas missed that party. Well, Thomas shows up the next week, he doesn't believe. He doesn't trust. And he says, I won't believe. I can't believe. I will not believe. He has a hard heart. And then when he sees Jesus, what happens? He sees Jesus. He feels his wounds, even though Jesus didn't have to do that, right? Jesus did not have to do what he demanded. He doesn't do it with us, but he did it with Thomas. Graciously, he does it. But then here's what he says next. He says that when he sees Jesus, what does he say? My Lord and my God. He responds with obedience. He responds with submission. He responds with humility. When he sees the evidence, he responds rightly. The problem is for some of us in the room, and maybe for many of us in the room, we've heard so many sermons about Jesus and we've seen so much evidence about his resurrection, but even still, we are in the camp of Thomas before we don't want to believe. We refuse to believe. We refuse to trust in Jesus. Point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. Submit your heart to the evidence, submit your heart to the evidence, that's what Thomas does, he starts out bad, but then he ends well, because he submits his heart, he sees the evidence, he's convinced, and when he does that, he finally believes, it's interesting, even in this section, Thomas fulfills John chapter 5, verse 23, John 5, 23, Jesus says, I want all people to honor the son, just as they honor the father, what does Thomas do? honors jesus just like you would honor god i love how at the end of this gospel of john it's like so many of the the loose ends of the gospel just get tied back together there's so many connections to the whole book here in this chapter it says whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him that's what jesus said in john five twenty three. what does thomas do he honors jesus just as he honors the father the problem with most people at least most people maybe like you who grow up in church and learned a lot about jesus there's a lot of people who might stand outside this room and say, why are any of these people not Christians? Why is there anyone in this room that's not a Christian? A lot of people might say that. But if you've been here for a while, you probably know reasons why people in this room are not Christians, why they're not trusting in Christ. It's not because they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. They refuse to believe. I said Lewis works at Chick-fil-A. A. There's a Chick-fil-A sauce that I just won't eat. I'm just going to admit it to you. The Polynesian sauce, okay? It's a weird idea. Is that your favorite? Yeah, that is your favorite, right? I refuse to eat it. I don't have a reason. I just don't, I'm not going to eat it. It's fine. I was talking to some people on Monday and I'm like, I'm not, no, I don't want Polynesian sauce. And they're like, oh, have you had it and not like it? I'm like, no, I just won't eat it. I have a lot of things like that. <laughs> the amen corner just started shaking. I just have a lot of food I won't eat. You know why? It's because I just don't want to eat it. That's it. I don't like going outside of my comfort zone. So I understand Thomas. I get it. I get it. He does it. He says, I won't do it. I won't do it unless I get exactly what I want. I understand it. Okay? If I live my whole life and never have Polynesian sauce, guess what? Who cares Amen. exactly that's my thought that's my philosophy right now i'm not missing out on anything i know lewis thinks i am some sweet and some sour it's just weird i ugh, it's gross it's like putting oh gross it's too uh yeah i have the magic sauce though right that's like almost the same thing as the polynesian sauce right okay good exactly I feel justified now I feel like that's my my point I like the magic sauce but it's because there's a bunch of sugar in it right right it's like all sugar it's like soy sauce with sugar whatever anyway guess what I don't I don't care and I won't eat Polynesian sauce and if you try to make me and you try to just pull some prank on me when you remember this in like three years like just don't do it because I won't do it okay until I and then, unless I change my mind because I guess I guess I might change my mind um but it, it doesn't matter okay You know, there's a lot of people with the gospel that have the same reaction that I have to Polynesian sauce, okay? I won't. I'll never. I won't even consider it. And maybe you have that thought. I won't do it, right? And you might have some more complicated reasons because the scripture gives some more complicated reasons, but it doesn't matter if Polynesian sauce is good, okay? Can we all agree with that? It doesn't matter if it's good, really, okay? It matters so much if what Jesus said is true. This matters so much. This is like, this is life and death. This is all that life is about right here. This is it. Like even if, if your life was terrible and you got this right, this is what matters most. Even if your life was great and you didn't get this right, it, then the great life wouldn't really matter much because this is, this is it. Some people know truth about God, but they, they don't want to believe it. Romans 1.18 says that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I've told you before, that's the idea of they have the truth in their heart, but they push it down. It's like what you do when the, when the trash can's full and you just keep pushing it down, right? It's full, but I'm gonna push it down. I'm not gonna deal with it, okay? That's what people do when it comes to God's righteousness. They say, I don't wanna trust it because if I do that, then I have to take out the trash of my sin and I don't wanna do that. So I'm just gonna keep pushing it down because at some point the smell will go away or whatever. But no, it won't go away. And it says here that God's wrath is revealed, that God's gonna do something about people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness that might be some of us, but others of us might be deceived by our sin. Like we don't even understand the reasons why. And that's why sometimes I'll talk to some students and they'll say, I don't know what's holding me back. I don't know what's holding me back from trusting Christ. I don't know. Well, there's a passage I want you to turn to. Hebrews chapter three. Let's look at this together. Hebrews three, verse 12. I want you to see it. So important. Hebrews 3, 12. He's talking to a group of Christians here, but it seems like in this group of Christians, just like this group, there's a lot of people who are not Christians yet. Even in this book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verse 12, says to the Christians especially, this is the command for the whole group, but especially for the Christians among the group. It says, take care. Be careful. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you, not you singular, you plural, in any of your small group, any of your group of people, because there might be in your group of people. If your group of people is big enough, there might be some people that this applies to that have an evil and unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. Be careful, right? So that's not just a command for the non-Christians to be careful about themselves. That's a command for every last person here. I need to be careful because there might be some people in my group that have an evil and unbelieving heart that they don't want to trust God. And it's going to lead you to fall away from the living God. You're going to leave at some point people who walk away from church, the people who walk away from God, it's all started with an evil and unbelieving heart. They didn't want to trust God. It says, here's what we should do though. Christians, everybody should exhort one another, push one another to righteousness every day, as long as it's called today. Not some days, not once a week, not just on Wednesday nights, but you should be exhorting one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you, not one of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's the deceitfulness of sin? A sin that lies. It's a little bit of bad sin. Little bit of bad words. Little bit of bad language. Little bit of bad jokes. Just a little bit. All you need is a little bit. And it stays. And then you become callous to it. And then you don't realize what's happening. And once you keep doing it and doing it and doing it, now you're in a bunch of sin. It's like, wow, how did I get here? Just a little bit. What's the response? Well, you should push one another. Let's exhort one another every day. Because if you have that evil and unbelieving heart, you want that to be exposed, which is rare. You usually don't want your problems to be exposed. Most people want their problems to be hidden. This is like, no, no, no I want my problems to be exposed, even Christians. That's why you, you meet in small groups. That's why every day on your um, group me, right? we have that DBR chat. We want our problems to be exposed by God's word. That's the, that's the idea here. And some of us need to be exposed that we don't trust God at all. Have an evil and unbelieving heart. Verse 14, he says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He basically says we are in Christ if we hold our confidence to the end, if we're trusting in Christ till the end. The people who are confident in Jesus for a little bit when they're in junior high or when they're in high school and then walk away, well, those people are not really in Christ. That's what he's saying. But the ones in Christ, well, they they hold their confidence at the end. Verse 15. As it is said, and this is a quotation of the Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice, if you are convicted of your sin, and you know that that little bit of sin has turned into a lot bit of sin in your life, and you recognize I'm probably one of those people with an unbelieving heart, kind of like Thomas, not submitting my heart to the evidence, but fighting against God. Here's what he says. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. If you're convicted, don't turn away from God. Please don't turn away from God. And he gives an example. As it was in the rebellion, there was a generation of people in the Old Testament who hardened their heart, and guess what God did? He killed them. He put them away. He said, you're not inheriting the promised land because you hardened your heart against me. You knew the truth, but you didn't respond. You had your chance, and there was a time where they had a chance to repent, and then that time was over, and then they lived in the consequences of their sin for 40 years. Your situation is different, but there's something that's the same, that God offers you life. God offers you forgiveness, and you have an opportunity, and you have a time period to respond. You have a time right now where you can submit your heart to God, because you know that that he's real. You know that he made you. You know that he's holy. You know that he's the just judge. You know that he's going to punish sin. You know that you deserve it. And you also know that Jesus came to bring peace and to solve that problem for you. You know that in your head and you get it, but it's like, I don't want to believe. I don't want to trust. That's you. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I think most people are not Christians, the ones who are not Christians, they're not Christians because they don't want to submit in their heart to God. That's the bottom line. Sometimes you'll share the gospel with somebody and say, hey, if I can convince you that Jesus rose from the dead, will you become a Christian today and give up all your sin? You know what most people say? Almost every person I've asked that question to says, well, no. Even if you convinced me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't become a crazy person like you. I want you to have that thought that Hebrews 3 is, is presenting you. Let's check your heart. See if you have an even unbelieving heart. Thomas did for a little while, but you saw that the character of his heart when he sees Jesus. He responds exactly like he should. John the Apostle, I think, puts this purpose statement right after Thomas's story to show this is the whole point for you. He says, I want you to be like Thomas, second half Thomas, not first half Thomas. First half Thomas was putting all these conditions for believing in God. Second half submitted to him. Says, I want you to submit, that's what John says, before you even see him. Because there have been signs and miracles that Jesus has done that you have not even seen. That only John saw and Peter saw. And James and those other disciples. But our response needs to be total trust. Total trust. And that's true for every last one of you. Even if you say, well, I am a Christian. Well, how, what's your response to Jesus when you, when you open up his word and you're convicted? Is it total trust? When you see the promises of God that seem hard to believe, is it total trust? When you're confronted by your Bible reading, you know there's something that needs to change. Is it, I'm going to totally trust that God wants me to do this, and I'm going to do it today? Or is it something less than that? And that, that's what John wrote this gospel for, and that's, what, that's the reason we've preached this gospel this year. Point number three, respond to Jesus with total trust. Respond to him with total trust. Here's what that looks like. That looks like you saying, I believe, just like John says, that Jesus is the Christ. That he is all the fulfillment that he said about the Old Testament. And also that he's the son of God. That doesn't mean he's less than God. That means he is God. I believe he has all the power, authority, and strength of God. And I believe that he died for me. And he rose again for me. Jesus said that there's a special blessing for you if you trust without seeing. Later on, there's a, there's a man who was sitting there who heard this conversation that John writes down, a man named Peter, and he wrote a book later on in his life, and he said the very same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 9. I'd love for you to write that down. 1 Peter 1, 8, 9. I want you to write that down. Here's what he says. As though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There are people who trust in Christ in this room who believe you don't know Jesus, but you love Jesus. You don't see him, rather. You know him, but you don't see him. You've never seen him face to face. You don't know what he looks like. You don't know what his nose looks like and his eyes look like. You haven't seen that. But guess what? You love him with all of your heart. And when you think about what's coming in the future, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. The next verse, verse 9 says, and obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of your faith in Jesus? The salvation of your souls. Which is interesting because it's almost like that's a future thing. Have you been saved now if you trust in Jesus? Yeah, but like, will you be saved when it all wraps up? Yeah, you're gonna feel the full weight of what it means to be saved and have that salvation. That might be the future thing, but the now thing is that if you believe in Jesus, you have life in his name right now. That's the second thing. He says, I want you to believe who Jesus is and who he said he was, and also I want you to believe and have life in him right now. What does that mean? Jesus said in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son, trusting in the Son right now, if you trust in Jesus right now, you have eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It's almost like there's this life that exists that you don't even really comprehend and know about until you trust in Christ. Ephesians 2 says it's like we're dead. We don't even know life, not real life, not eternal life, until we know Jesus. But once we know Jesus, we know that eternal life. It says, one who doesn't obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's this picture of like a dark cloud. It's like a big backpack. It's on them. Jesus said this in John 5, 24. It's very very similar. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life right now. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You have life now. Jesus goes on in John 10, 10. Jesus talked about himself as the good shepherd, and here's what he said. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what happens when you respond to Jesus. Jesus. You have life, a different kind of life. Does that mean you get all the stuff you wanted before? No, it means your appetites and everything has changed now. And Jesus satisfies your soul. You get Jesus, the good shepherd. You get the best leader ever. If you remember that, we studied that back in John chapter 10. We said that you need a good leader. You need the best leader. You need Jesus to be your your good shepherd. When you trust in Jesus, you get his payment for your sin. We studied uh, John 19 where it said, it is finished. Where Jesus paid for sin. When you trust in Jesus, you not only get him as your leader, you also get him as your savior and the payment for your sin. When you trust in Jesus, you also get the benefit of that, the proof of his resurrection, his empty tomb. What we went through all that last week, that there's no other way that this could have happened. He also gives you this new time of, of life that you get by knowing god john 17 3 says it's eternal life what is it it means that you know god that's what it is to have eternal life the question right for you is what are you going to do what are you going to do about it i did some math this is sermon number 37 from the gospel of john so if you've been to all these you've been to 37 sermons which have been 27 hours congratulations you made it 27 hours can you believe that? 1,620 minutes, okay? That's a lot of time, okay? That's a lot of time that you just in this context have studied this, this gospel of John as we've been reading it together. I heard about a court case this week. It was in Long Beach, 1992. So long before you were born. Um, <laughs> that was for the leaders. Um, I, it was the longest time that a jury took to deliberate. So if you know anything about court cases, there's like the stuff that happens before the case, then there's the hearings and all that stuff with the attorneys and what you picture as a court case, then the jury goes and they deliberate in a room. The longest one that I could find was four and a half months of deliberation, okay? Four and a half months, which might not seem like a long time, but usually juries juries reach a verdict in like a couple hours, sometimes really short, other times maybe in a day. a crazy situation, maybe two days, a week at the very most. But this weird court case in Long Beach, weird, 1992, it took them four and a half months to decide what they were going to do with the evidence. How long has it taken you to decide what you were going to do with the evidence about Christ? For some of you, it's been more than four and a half months. and the solution to that is not let's just keep pushing it back and pushing it back it's to say we need to come to a verdict what what are we going to believe about jesus what are we going to do about jesus what are we going to do about his gospel are we going to believe are we going to respond are we going to trust are we going to obey him or are we going to say no not not for me i'm going to disbelieve we need to come to a verdict about what jesus said and who he is thomas came to it very quickly when he saw jesus And Jesus said to you, blessed are you if you believe before you see him. Hoping that some people will believe in him even today. You can believe in Christ for the first time today. That's what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that you will believe in Jesus. And some of you, that you will keep trusting him. Responding to him in total trust. Let's ask God for that right now.